we? You guys excited to be here tonight? All right, let's get into the word. My name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors on the team here. If you have your Bible, you can head over to 2 Corinthians 5, and we will be there in just a second. Way back in the summer of 2003, I was this very mature, very smart 18-year-old who had a lot together, okay? And so I decided that I should ask my then-girlfriend to marry me. And so we walked, I took her on a walk around the block of where she lived on the north side of Abilene. We sat on a park bench that no longer exists today. And I asked her to marry me. There was no, no, you know, cameras or big hoopla like you kids do today, all right? This was different. And so I asked her to marry me. She said, yes. And then a year later on July 10th, 2004, so this Sunday is my anniversary, July 10th, 2004, we got married. Woo! It's been 18 years. Two weeks after my wedding, I realized that I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to love my wife like Christ loved the church. I had no idea how to lead her and love her and sacrifice for her, right? I just had no idea. I mean, I was filled with this hope and this excitement about the future, but I was also feeling this heaviness, like, oh my gosh, this is too heavy for me. I don't know how am I, how am I going to pull this off, you know? Then a couple years later in 2006, when Aaron, my wife, and I felt the Lord call us to go minister to people in China, to move to China, I felt that same thing. I was excited. I felt some hope that we were going to do something for Jesus and Jesus was going to use us. But I also had this heaviness, like, this is too big for me. It's too heavy for me. I don't think I could do it. What am I doing here? How do I pull this off? And then in 2008, at the old, wizened age of 22 years old, my daughter was born, Kennedy Grace. And I had that same moment that parents talk about. And I heard them talking about it, and I always used to think, like, oh, that's just something parents say, you know. But then you experience it, and it's legit. And so I was in the hospital holding Kennedy Grace in my hand, this little baby. Erin was sleeping because, you know, she had done most of the work. And so I was holding the baby, and I was thinking, man, I'm so excited about what God's going to do. I'm so excited about what she's going to be and what we're going to get to be together. But then I was also going, oh, no, now I'm in charge. And I have no idea what I'm doing. I felt this weightiness, this heaviness. How am I going to pull this off? Fast forward a few years. The day before I turned 28, I was elected as senior pastor of a small struggling church in Green Bay, Wisconsin that was about to default on a loan on their building. And things were bad enough that people were bringing toilet paper because we couldn't afford it. So it was that kind of a situation. And I remember thinking, man, there's so much potential in this little church, and God's going to do something big, but oh, I don't know what I got myself into, you know? Like, man, this just feels so heavy. It's too heavy for me. I felt the same thing when I started foster care and when we adopted three awesome kids that completed our family of eight, this hope-filled 
heaviness, you know? And I know you have similar experiences, moments in your life where you're called to something bigger and greater than you, but you have this feeling of inadequacy, like, oh man, I think I totally outpunted my coverage here, you know? You're like, I don't think I can catch up. Maybe it was when you applied for a job that you really had no business applying for, but then you got it, and you were like, oh no, now I have to actually do the stuff I said I could do in the interview, you know? I don't know if I can pull this off. This thing is too heavy. Maybe it was when you had a kid or you moved into the dorm or you started a business or a ministry or something like that. But I bet, I bet you've been there. These moments of, of hope-filled heaviness where responsibility, you go, man, I don't know if I can do that. And if you're a Christ follower, this just kind of ramps up a little bit, right? I mean, if Jesus is the Lord of your life and he holds the reins to your life, then you have these extra moments like this if you're reading the Bible. And let me show you what I mean. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 is writing about eternity. And he's, he's just kind of encouraging the church in Corinth and, and us. And he's just saying, hey, don't be discouraged. I know things are difficult. I know that there's persecution and there, you're struggling and there's trials and tribulations. But, but don't be discouraged because this is not your home, right? Like heaven is your home. And so he's just kind of encouraging them. You were made for heaven, not for here. And so this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, it kind of lifts weight. It's kind of like that moment when you're engaged to be married and you're looking at your husband-to-be or your wife-to-be and you're thinking about all that's gonna be and you're excited or maybe you're pregnant with your first kid or your wife's pregnant with your first kid and you get to feel them kick for that first time or you hear the heartbeat or whatever and you're just going man this is awesome and it's those moments of hope about the future that kind of help us to endure whatever we have to endure to make it through to that moment right to see the baby to be married to Get the job or whatever it is. And so this is one of those moments in 2 Corinthians 5. He's going, you were made for heaven. Heaven is our home. Don't be discouraged. But then the Apostle Paul kind of makes a turn in this text. And he goes, you have the hope of heaven. And that should be encouraging to you. But there's this like other weightier side to this. And so we'll hop around a little bit. But at 2 sec- Look at 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is after he's talked about heaven and what's to come and where we belong, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing what we know about heaven, now our attention turns to others and we begin persuading others. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that those who live, that's those who have given their life to Christ, and Christ has given life to them. Those who live might no longer live for themselves like they did before Jesus, but now they live for him, Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised, knowing what we know about heaven Now we live for others and we live for Jesus. Do you see the turn? I have heaven, so now I live for Christ by persuading others about heaven. Skip down to verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, ha- God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message 
of reconciliation. So I don't, I don't know where you're at in your walk with Christ. And maybe you haven't even begun a walk with Christ yet. And so I just kind of want to take a moment and connect the dots here. You and I were born in sin, separated from God. Everything good, love, kindness, everything, joy, hope, everything good is on another side. The other side of a huge chasm from us when we're born in sin. And we have no shot at getting across the chasm. We have no way, no hope to get back to God. You've heard of the, the phrase irreconcilable differences, right? It's used to say we're done. We're out. There's no way. It's used a lot in divorce cases. We're, there's no way for us to fix this. Irreconcilable differences. You and I were born with irreconcilable differences between us and God. It's where we start out, no chance, no hope, no way. And then Jesus. Jesus entered human history and he died on a cross paying our debt for our sin and our rebellion. And he rose back to life through his own power, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And he became the way for us to get back to God. Now we can be reconciled back to God through Jesus. Now there is a chance, there is a hope, there is a way, but follow me. I want us to feel the weight of this in 2 Corinthians 5. What it just said is that the ministry of that reconciliation, in other words, the way that reconciliation happens, the process by which it happens, the responsibility for carrying it out, and the message of reconciliation, the, the gospel truth that it's even possible through Jesus, the ministry of the reconciliation and the message of reconciliation has been given, the Bible just said, by God to us. Who? The church. I mean, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and now he holds the reins of your life, it's been given to you and to me. God entrusted, the Bible just said, the ministry of reconciliation to us. That means you and I, individually and collectively as the church, we are God's representatives to a lost and dying world. We're God's representatives to our neighbors, those he has sovereignly and providentially placed us next to. I mean, I'm not making this up. Look at the next verse. That's what it says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. His appeal through us. Do you feel the weight of that? I mean, I don't know about you, but Man, when I read this, I, I'm, I'm filled with this awe and this, this hope about what could be and what I could get to be a part of and reconciling people far from God, back to God, spanning the chasm that is sin and death and separation from God. I mean, I get excited about that, but I also feel like, ah, this is too heavy. How am I going to pull that off? How am I going to do that? I can barely do this. How am I going to pull that off? Let me, let me ask you a question. Think about those weighty moments 
you felt in your life that we mentioned earlier, you know, the birth of a kid or starting that new job or starting the business or the ministry or getting married or whatever it is, when you felt that moment of realization that this is heavier than you can bear on your own and you're going, man, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And you feel that there's this weight when you felt that. It's a moment of weight. Some of you may call it like a moment of panic, like you're looking at your baby and you're going, ah, what do I do, right? And there's some panic there when you felt that. What would you do next? Like, how would you handle it? I know for me in my life, I've handled that different ways. Like, sometimes I just ignore it. And I just turn my attention towards something lighter, you know, so that I can get my mind off of the difficulty and the weight. And I just kind of ignore it and I just drop it and I just hope that it works out automatically or naturally or whatever. Other times I, I feel like when I feel that weight, I decide I'm going to just take this on, you know, and I'm just going to put it all on me. And I can just plod ahead and I can just get this done. Let me tell you, neither of those things worked out for me. That reminds me of Moses in Exodus chapter 18. In Exodus 18, Moses is leading like a couple million people, the Israelites, in the desert. And it's just brutal. I mean, they're complaining and they're whining and they're ungrateful and they're rebelling. And they're nothing like church people. You know what I'm saying? They're nothing like you guys. And he's just, every day in Exodus 18, Moses, from sunup to sundown, is listening to the people argue, bicker, complain, and then deciding judgment between them. That's what he's doing. From sunup to sundown, he's just listening to their arguments and judging them, saying, okay, you're right, you're wrong, you need to do this, you need to do that. And then his father-in-law shows up. It's exhausting. Moses is absolutely exhausted. And his father-in-law shows up, a guy named Jethro. Jethro Bodine. Jed's kinfolk. You guys laughed at the Jethro Bodine joke? All right. I like that. Not the Beverly Hillbillies. It's a different Jethro. And he sees all this happening and how exhausted Moses is. And then here's what he says in verse 17 of Exodus 18. What you are doing, this is Jethro talking to Moses, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So he goes, hey, this isn't good. You can't do this alone. This is too heavy for you. But he doesn't just stop there. He gets real specific about a plan. Look down in verse 21. He goes, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. You know, sometimes I run from the weight of responsibility, just drop it, or I hope it, like, automatically works itself out or happens naturally, or sometimes I just keep plugging along, going, okay, this is just how it is. It's just, a, you know, it's a season, and I'll just get through it, and it'll be fine or worse. This is always how it's going to be. This is just the way life is. It's just heavy, but the right response to the weight of godly responsibility is to get help and get a plan. 
get help and get a plan. Moses accepted the help of Jethro. He knew, man, this is this calling, this thing is too big for me to keep going the way I'm going. I've got to make a plan, and it's the same with your marriage. It's too important for you just to act like it's just going to happen and not have a plan. It's the same with parenting. It's too important just to say, well, if they're going to follow Jesus, they'll just end up following Jesus and, and not make a plan to help them find Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. It's too important when you feel the weight of what God is calling you to do in college or starting a ministry or starting a business wherever to just run from it never works out it's never what you're supposed to do the weight is good important things significant things in life they're supposed to be heavy so that we get help and get a plan You and I were given the ministry and the message of reconciliation. God has entrusted to us the responsibility of carrying out his plan to save the world. That's heavy. I mean, we've been talking in this series, Like a Good Neighbor, about the great commandment to love your literal neighbor as yourself. Those God has sovereignly and providentially placed you next to the desks and offices next to yours, the houses next to yours, the weight racks and the treadmills next to yours. When you think about all those people, it's heavy. How am I going to love all these people that way? How am I going to pull this off? It's too heavy. And we can run from that feeling, hope that it happens automatically or naturally, or we can get help and get a plan. Today is the last weekend of our Like a Good Neighbor series, so let's end with a plan. Here's our plan. When we talk about bless, at Beltway Park, we're not just talking about just a general idea. When we say go bless your neighbors, we're talking about something specific. It's actually an acronym to help us, a plan. The B stands for begin with prayer. We've been talking about that over the last two weeks. Just finding out your neighbors' names and just getting to know them and just starting to pray for them. Just find out some names and pray for them by name. So I'm not going to stick on this very long, but suffice it to say, I, I think I should talk to God about my neighbors before I talk to my neighbors about God. I think sometimes we get that backwards and we're trying to evangelize and trying to get people to understand God and we haven't yet even begun to pray. I should talk to God about my neighbors before I talk to my neighbors about God. This whole thing begins with prayer. And listen, planning and praying, they're not separate things. We prayerfully plan and we plan to pray. And praying and planning are all in the same thing. But it always has to be first. Begin with prayer. The L stands for listen with care. And there's so much power in just listening. When I started as a pastor, I, I used to think that I, I was nervous because I thought I would have to have the right things to say in moments of personal tragedy. 
in the lives of the people that I was privileged to pastor, you know, because pastors end up in those moments a lot. And I thought, man, what am I going to say? I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't, I don't think I have the right thing to say. And then over the years, I figured out that I'd, it doesn't really matter what I say in general. It's really about me just being there and listening. Two months after I became the pastor of that struggling church in Green Bay, I was 28 years old, and I got a call in the middle of the night and it was from one of the dads of the only other young couple that was in this little church other than us. And the young couple's name was Greg and Jesse. And Greg and Jesse had tried for years to have a baby and were told they couldn't have a baby and they wouldn't have a baby and they should stop trying. And then miraculously they became pregnant and the pregnancy had gone great and everything was great and the baby was due just a few days but for some unexplained reason, their son was born, having already passed away. And at this church, they, they just called me pastor. It was just the tradition there. They didn't call me Pastor Jake or Pastor Mills or Jake. Or, they just called me pastor. It's kind of a term of endearment. And so I got this call, and he said, Pastor, Pastor, you got, you got to come to the hospital. Because the baby didn't make it. And I got up, and I got into my car, and I was driving to the hospital, and I remember thinking, what am I going to say when I get there? I waited in the waiting room with the family, and both Greg and Jesse's dads were elders at the church. And so we talked, and I listened, and we prayed, and we cried. And then... I was allowed to go back into the room where Greg and Jesse were in their hospital room. And, man, Greg and Jesse were just broken. And I just didn't know what to say. And I just cried with them. And I just sat with them. And I held the body of their son with them. I remember when I got home, I, I sat down on our couch in the little parsonage that we lived in. And I just wept. Like, I don't think I'd ever wept before. My daughter Kennedy was like five years old. Aaron was pregnant with Joshua. And I remember thinking, that could be me. That could be me. Kennedy came over and that little kid way and laid her head on my shoulder and said, it's going to be okay, Daddy. I didn't have anything to say. But I remember over the next few weeks, I kept getting these you know, calls and in these conversations and texts after the memorial service and all that from the family just saying, thank you so much for all that you did. Thank you so much for what you did. And I, I remember thinking, I didn't do anything. I didn't have any good words to say. I had no miracles, no powerful, you know, epiphanies. I had nothing. But I guess that's, I guess that's not what they needed. They just needed me to listen. They just needed me to be there. Listen, your neighbors, the people God has sovereignly and providentially placed you next to, down the hall in the dorm room or across the street or across the office, they really just want you to listen to them. They really just want you to hear them. To show that you care by just listening. Just ask them a question about their life or their kids or their job. And then just shh, 
to just close your mouth and just listen. That's what this L is all about in bless. The E in bless stands for eat together. This is where it gets a little hard, honestly. A little difficult because this is, in this one, you really got to kind of put some time and maybe some money into it. And it's not just, you know, praying when you think about them or talking to them out in the yard for a second and listening to them. But you really got to kind of set some time aside for this and kind of take your neighbor out to eat or invite them to your house to eat or take them out for coffee or something like that to get to know them and to love them. You know, Jesus had three and a half years, around about three and a half years of public ministry to get what he wanted to get done. And, and he was like moving. He was going. He was going from town to town. And he was praying for people and healing people and casting out demons and teaching and, and turning a little bit of food into 5,000 meals. And, I mean, he was doing all kinds of stuff. But you know what else he was doing? Eating. But not just for sustenance. I mean, so habitual was Jesus' way of life of eating with people that no one else wanted to eat with. So habitual was this that the religious leaders of the time actually judged him for it. And they go, hey, why do you keep eating with tax collectors and sinners? We keep seeing you around the table. You're always around the table with people we would never dine with. To which Jesus replied, the sick are the ones that need the doctor, not the healthy. You know, some of us, it feels like we have this Messiah complex. Like, I got to go. I got I to gotta go take care of this. People count on me, Jake. You don't know. I got to go do this. I don't have time to go to dinner with my neighbor. I don't have time to take them coffee. People depend on me. I've got things I got to do. The world will just unravel and fall apart if I don't get there and do that thing. We've got this Messiah complex. But Jesus was the Messiah. And he had time to eat with people. To talk with people. To listen to people. To show them that he cared. The E in bless, it's going to take some time. And it may even take some money. But here's the thing, listen, we believe in this so much at Beltway Park. I mean, we believe in this so much that we're going to do something crazy tonight, all right? We're, we're actually going to help you finance this E in bless, all right? So on your way out, we're going to give everybody 10 bucks. Every individual, every kid, like if you've got a family of four, get four envelopes and we want you to use, I'm being serious. Some of you are like, is this a joke? It's not a joke. We're going to hand you cash on the way out. We want you to take it, and we want you to use it to spend time with your neighbors. Don't just give it away. I mean, if God tells you to, do whatever he says. But really what we want you to do is to buy some time, you know? Take a meal to somebody. Maybe use it to, to buy the ingredients to make a meal for a neighbor or Get some Christian chicken at Chick-fil-A. You know, whatever. Because then it's kind of giving it back to Jesus, you know, and it's kind of a, but not on Sunday. But we just want to, want to this is how much we believe in it. We want to help you with this. Take, take that. Here's what's going to happen. 
you, this $10 bill, you're going to get it, and you're going to be like, oh, no. Now i got to do something. Now there's like, this thing is the heaviest $10 bill I've ever felt. And that's good. That's good. Maybe you just feel the weight of it for a second, and you get some help, and you get a plan. That, that's good. And some of you are going to say, you know what? I don't, I don't want to take God's money for that. I don't take God's money. But you know what God has convicted me of recently? It's all God's money. Like all of my money is God's money. All of my stuff is God's stuff. The house that I live in that I'm so hesitant to invite my neighbors over for dinner in, that house belongs to God. The money in my bank account belongs to God. My time, the days, the hours, the minutes, they belong to God. They're all his anyway. And so I want you to grab that 10 bucks on your way out. Psalm 89 says the earth and all that is in it belongs to God. Everything. So I was thinking, I'll use my time and resources for God's mission when I realize that they're not mine to begin with. If I can get that, I just feel like if I can get there, that they're not mine to begin with, then I'll start to use them for God's mission. So what does this look like? This E and bless. Man, I don't know. Pray about it. Ask God. Write some things down. One of the couples in my life group is going to have a brunch and invite their um, neighbors over. Another person... I talked to is delivering brownies to their neighbors. So another person this last week on July 4th had a block party because of this series and what we're talking about and invited all their neighbors over. I mean, if it feels weighty, that's okay. That's because it's important. Important things are weighty. Just start somewhere. One neighbor, one meal. Or if you have some like Christ-following people in your neighborhood or in your workplace or whatever, maybe you team up. Maybe you partner up and you do something together, you know? Maybe you just get help and you get a plan. The S's in BLESS stand for serve with love and share your story. Listen, I want to be clear. We, our goal here is Reconciliation. Our goal here is reconciliation with God. We want to see lost people found. We want to see hopeless people filled with hope. We want to see people trapped in darkness, given the light. We want to see people changed. I mean, we want heaven to be crowded. I mean, that's, that's the goal here. Make no mistake about it. That's the goal. So this isn't just about being a good neighbor and making friends. It's not just about like guacamole and board games. I mean, that can help you. Fulfill the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. But at some point, there has to be a moment when we kind of open our mouths and we actually share Christ with our neighbors, you know? And if they're Christ followers, we just encourage and we sharpen one another as brothers in Christ. And if they're not Christ followers, we just talk to them about Jesus. And, but, but there is a reason that serve is before share. It's because the great commandment helps us fulfill the great commission. Loving and serving our neighbors is the first step to seeing our neighbors come to know Jesus. So serving helps with sharing. 
Again, Jesus is our example in this. When he went to a village or a town, and his goal was to teach them the truth, for them to accept the truth, for them to give their lives to God. I mean, that was his goal. But oftentimes, when he got to the village or the town, he would begin by serving them. He would, he would heal sickness. He would cast out demons. He would, one time, he was preaching to a bunch of people. They got hungry, and he fed 5,000 people. I mean, the last lesson he gave to his closest disciples before he died on a cross was to serve. He knelt down and he washed their feet like, a, like the lowliest of servants. And then he got up and he said, now you go and do likewise. Go do this. Go serve. So how can we serve our neighbors? Again, you got to pray about it. You got to get help and get a plan. Write some things down. Maybe you, maybe you mow their lawn, pay for the fence. Maybe you offer to watch their house when you know they're heading out of town. Maybe you offer to walk an elderly neighbor's dog once a week. Or maybe you offer to watch their kids because you know that their spouse is deployed and they just need a moment of sanity to choose the right cereal at the grocery store, you know? And so you just kind of watch their kids. Maybe, maybe you do that, but for nothing in return, asking for nothing in return, you serve them. Listen, the second S in bless, the second S in bless will go much better. Sharing your story will go much better if you do the first S and bless. But that can't be where you stop. You can't stop at serving blesses spelled with two S's, you know? You can't stop at the first one. Because when we lived in China, we, we had a lot of Buddhist neighbors. And they served us really well. They loved us well. But they didn't know Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And you probably have some neighbors that don't know Jesus, but they're, they're really nice to you, and they, maybe, they serve, maybe they outdo you in service. But they don't know Jesus, and nobody's eternal destination or eternal destiny is being changed because of it. No gospel is being shared, and it doesn't have anything to do with 2 Corinthians 5, ministry of reconciliation, right? I think there has to be a moment where we verbally share Christ with them in some way, even if it's just to invite them to church with us. I mean, it doesn't have to be complex. It's not actions or words. It's actions and words together. With the last S and bless, we're just saying, let's just share how God has changed our lives. And I think the reason that a lot of Christians don't talk to other people about Jesus is because they don't feel equipped to do so. They feel like, man, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. Like, I don't know. What, if I start telling somebody about Jesus, they're going to ask me questions, and I'm not going to be able to answer the questions. And that's not what we're talking about. Listen, beloved, when I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't automatically become a preacher or a professional evangelist. I became a witness Think about that. I mean, in a court case, what does a witness do? She testifies, right? Testifies about what? What she saw, what she heard, what she felt, what happened to her. She just tells her story, her experience. That's it. 
So as we get to know our neighbors, we just tell them the story of how God has changed our lives. And if they ask you a bunch of questions, you just go, you know what, I don't really know the answer to those questions. But man, all I know is that all I want you to hear is that my marriage is different because of Jesus. And my family is different because of Jesus. And my heart and mind are different because of Jesus. And, and I don't really know the answers, but I just want you to hear my story because God has done something in me I want you to hear about it and then you say this you say well just come and see just just come and see that's it but what about this over here I don't know about that I'll try to find the answer but I just want you to know that Jesus changed my life just come and see what about other religions ah it's a good question I can't really explain it but I just want you to come and see what God has done in my life what about eschatology what about pre-trip post-trip and mid-trip what are you like speaking tongues right now I don't know I think we may be like red trip, blue trip, one trip, two trip. First church of Dr. Seuss. I don't know what you're talking about. I just know that Jesus changed my life. And he changed my family's lives. And he's done this amazing thing. And I just want you to come and see. Come on, some cool stuff is happening at my church. They gave me ten bucks. <laughs> Something's got to be going on. You can ride with me. Just come and see if you want to use like a gospel track or take them through the Romans road or whatever. That's fine. Do it. But after you listen to them and serve them, man, be as bold as you're led to be by the Lord. But if that's not really you, that's okay. Because you're not called to be a professional evangelist or a theologian. You're called to be a witness of what God has done in your life. You get to be a witness. Good news, you're an expert when it comes to your own story. No continuing education needed. This is bless. This is the plan. I mean, change it, modify it, make it better. But I think we need to work a plan. I think we need to have a plan because two weeks into my marriage... When I realized I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what I got myself into and I, this is too heavy and how am I going to pull this whole love your wife like Christ loved the church thing off and I, I felt the weight of that. You know what I did? Nothing. I didn't do anything. I didn't ask, you know, older, wiser, been there, husbands, what they do. I didn't get a book on marriage. I didn't even pray about it. I just ignored it. Just thought, well, it'll take care of itself. And the first two years of my marriage were difficult. And I know a lot of people struggle in the first two years of their marriage, but I just know that we struggled. I struggled, and it was me. I was a boy trying to act like a man, like I knew what I was doing, and I had it all together, and I didn't. And my bride was so gracious with me and so patient with me. And finally, two years in, I felt that same thing again, this weight. Man, I'm not doing what I said I was going to do. I'm not being who I said I was going to be. I'm not loving her and leading her like Christ wants me to lead her. But this time, by God's grace, I got some help. 
and I got a plan. I read some books, I asked around, I got some counsel from wise men of God, and I started to think about practically how I can love my wife like I'm supposed to love her and lead her like I'm supposed to lead her, and I started working a plan, and man, I mess up all the time, and I'm not where I want to be, and I, but I have a plan, and I have some help, and I'm moving in the right direction, you know? As you get older, it just seems like the years just go by so fast, don't they? I mean, people used to say that to me, and I was like, what's wrong with you? Time just goes to, you know, but as I get older and my kids get older, man, they just go by so fast. Like, it feels like just yesterday I was a kid asking another kid on a park bench to marry me, and on Sunday it's been 18 years, and then... Like, I've been a pastor or a missionary for 17 years, and that little tiny baby infant that I felt like I was going to break because she was so light, she's heavy now. She's almost 14. What in the world? I mean, it just goes by like that. And my fear is that we can feel... The weight of this, what we've been talking about, the 2 Corinthians 5 message and ministry of reconciliation, we can feel the weight of it in this moment and then do nothing and then look up and 10 years have passed. And our neighbors, those who have God has sovereignly and providentially placed us next to, they're going to miss out. Miss out on life, miss out on hope, and I'm not being overdramatic when I say miss out on eternity. Because they'll miss out on this ministry of reconciliation that God, in his infinite wisdom, has given to us, to me and you, to the church, not to pastors, but to Jesus followers. But if we don't do that, if we take seriously this weight and this responsibility and we, we answer it, we respond to it by getting help and getting a plan, if we, if we start to do this thing and we work a plan that God gives us to reach people and to reach our neighbors, imagine what could happen. I mean, imagine the hope we can bring to the hopeless. Imagine the light we can bring in the darkness. Imagine if you got to baptize your neighbor. Because you just found out their name and you started praying for them. Then you were out in your yard one day and you asked them a question and you didn't talk and you just listened. You invited them over to eat one time. You mowed their lawn. Because God led you to, and that gave you a platform to then share your story. And now your story has become their story. Imagine what could happen if we just got help and got a plan. I think it's worth it. I think when you feel the weight of godly responsibility... Your choice is to run from it, to ignore it, to try to shoulder it yourself. None of those work. Or to get help and get a plan. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness.
mercy.